0: My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. Today we continue in this series through Deuteronomy. And uh, uh, this particular series, Knowing God Through His Law. And we've been going through Deuteronomy for a while now. And Deuteronomy, for those of you who are new, is is God giving His His law to the people, reminding them who they are and whose they are, as they get ready to enter into the land that's been promised to them after wandering for quite some time through the wilderness. And today we find ourselves in Deuteronomy chapter 12. If you have your own Bible, you are welcome to turn there. Uh, before I jump in, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. Lord, I, worshiping together this morning, especially that last song as, as Brandon just encouraged us to sing, hearing the voices, Lord, what a beautiful thing. And so, God, Lord, I pray as we talk about worship and as we look at what you have to say about worship in Deuteronomy 12, Lord, that you would challenge and confront and encourage us, God, in the way that only your spirit knows how to do and reach the places, Lord, that you need to reach. Lord, we want you to invade and infect, Lord, our lives, uh, uh, particularly those dark corners that we like to hide from everyone else. And so, God, we, we invite you, Lord, to do that this morning, Change us, Lord, that we might look like you and love like you and live like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, several years ago, a year after my wife and I got married, we ended up serving with Youth with a Mission, YWAM, for a few years down in Mexico. And one of the ministries they had is called Homes of Hope, where we would, we would go out and teams would come down and we'd connect them and we would build homes for people. These were fairly small homes. They would radically improve the quality of life for the family receiving them. It was a 20 by 20 foot, 400 square foot house cement, no plumbing, they didn't connect electricity or anything, but that was a huge upgrade and on one of those builds, one of the very first builds, I found myself on the drywall team. Now, I didn't know a lot about construction. I was providing mostly support. But I do remember uh, getting, getting being taught where we do drywall and then the hows and the how not tos of how to do the drywall. And, and on, unfortunately, this particular time when I was doing drywall, very, very early on learning how to do this, I did something wrong. For those of you who have construction experience, you'll understand, as I demonstrate, I was holding the drywall, and I had traced it out, and I began to cut like this. You never cut towards yourself. People know this. And so what happened is, as the side weakened, as it got closer to me, unfortunately it snapped. And as it snapped, the the blade in my hand, and my arm. And you can't see it from where you are, but there's two big veins that go up my arm, and they come together, and the slit went right between them and stopped right as they met. Ooh, the Lord was with me that day. (laughs) I was given a a where, a how-to, and a how-not-to, and I didn't quite listen. Over the course of this week, as I was thinking about this talk and that story, there's times in my life in which I do the exact same thing with my kids as I want to teach them a new skill but I wanna make sure they do it safely. This is what you do. This is where you do it. This is how you don't do it. Sometimes we give these instructions to protect our things. There is a place where you want a child to have a marker and there are places where you don't want a child to have a marker in your home, especially a permanent marker. Oftentimes we do this to protect not just our stuff, but to protect our kids from perhaps the danger they don't understand. Some kids are fearless to a fault but when my son sees me working with tools, holding a drill, swinging a hammer, pressing a button on a saw, he often wants to be involved, and, and I get to show him this is, this is where we do this, this is how we do this, this is how we don't do this if it's necessary. When my kids are small and learning how to scooter, we live where there's lots of hills, and so inevitably they learn on a hill. But one of the rules is you don't pass me because if you lose control, I, I want to be able to catch you as opposed to a car catching you. We teach them what to do, where to do it, how not to do it. And this week as is reading through Deuteronomy chapter 12 and about what God has to say about worship. He does the same thing with the people of Israel. He gives people specific instructions regarding worship. This is where you're going to worship. This is how you're going to worship. This is how you're not going to worship. And while at first glance, it kind of seems a little bit micromanage-y, perhaps, to some people, could it be perhaps... That while worship was such a good thing for the people, that God in his instructions was actually protecting them from something. That worship, if done wrong, maybe call it malworship, could actually present kind of a danger to the people. And so those are the questions we're going to wrestle through as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 12. And I have two points regarding the place that they worship and one point regarding the how of their worship. And we're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1. Be careful, we read, Be careful to follow these statutes and ordinances in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days you live on the earth. We've gone through lots of these statutes. We saw the Ten Commandments. God has given them love boundaries, again, to remind them of who they are, whose they are, and to guide them and to keep them. Number Verse 2, destroy completely all the places where the nations that you were driving out worship their gods on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, burn their Asherah poles, cut down the carved images of their gods, wipe out their names from every place. This is a reminder that we get over and over and over again because God doesn't want anything stealing his people's affections from him. Continuing, verse 4. Don't worship the Lord your God this way. Instead, here's where we're going to focus ourselves Instead, turn to the place, and we don't have the specific place yet, but turn to the place the Lord your God chooses from all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling and go there. That worship is going to have a central location. Verse 6, you were to bring there your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tents. Some translations say tithes and personal contributions, your vow offerings and free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. A lot of that may sound like nonsense to you. We don't have time to go into the differences between all the different offerings, but this is what the book of Leviticus lays out as the different kinds of offerings that people were to bring. But verse 7, you will eat there in the presence of the Lord. Rejoice with your household in everything you do because the Lord your God has blessed you. Our final verse 8. You are not to do as we are doing here today. Everyone is doing whatever seems right in his own sight. Some translations will say, right in their own eyes. Now God gives the people who are preparing to enter the land promised to them instructions on the nature of worship. And part of those instructions is that there will be a singular place given to them to be a central place of worship. But why is one place so darn significant? For a people that had been wandering, millions of people had been so spread out, why does God say that this is the place where certain kinds of worship, where certain kinds of offerings will be brought to me exclusively? Why a main location? Does it make a difference to people doing all of that in their hometowns versus wherever God will place his name? And what we're gonna do this morning is is we're going to fast forward in the story of God's people and we're going to see two instances in which they don't keep this command. God says there's going to be one place and we're going to see two examples of people saying, no, 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 no. we're going to have multiple places and we're going to see what the consequences of those are in the lives of God's people to see then what it is God is protecting them from and guarding them against when he gives them this command. The first point is this, and I heard this a while back. It stuck with me, and it goes well with this passage, that God gives his people one place because in a world of many gods, in many places, he is one God. In a world in which many places corresponded to many gods, God gives them one place because he is one God, one true God. The people of Israel had a customized worship problem, and they were going into a land surrounded by people who had a customized worship problem. Now, now, when they were venturing through the wilderness, they built altars here and there, and that was okay because they were in transit. But now that they're being fixed in one place, God knew they were coming into a land in which Canaan, who they wouldn't finish driving out, had lots of different idols, lots of different altars, lots of different asherah poles, lots of modes of worship, including in their homes. People would put these altars up in their homes so that they could do their own personal rituals and ceremonies in order to lure God, the the different presence of the different gods into their homes to do them favors. God didn't want that. God knew that customization in their worship would ultimately lead to canonization in their worship. And so God wanted to reserve one place of worship because he was one God. One place would provide accountability. As people came together, they were far less likely to wander. One place would provide focus. One place for worship would mean less distraction and less distortion. And one of the reasons that we know this is, we actually see as we fast forward just a little bit in the story of God's people, the failure to actually continue to worship God in the place, as he's instructed them to do so. Now, we have a few hundred people in our church have been going through a series in the book of Judges. Now, Judges happens a little bit after the people enter the land. They, con- they, they, they conquer the land not fully, but they conquer the land, they take over, they inhabit the land, and then the book of Judges comes after that, and what you see is the downward spiral of God's people as he wants to provide for them and bless them, but they continue to turn away towards idols and to worship false gods. And then they cry out, Lord, rescue us, and then he does, and then they turn away, and they forget, and then they end up facing consequences, and there's this downward spiral. But when you get to Judges chapter 17, something really interesting happens. This phrase used in verse 8 of Deuteronomy 12 when it says, don't worship like this. Right now, everyone's worshiping according to what's right in their own eyes. We see that phrase happen again. It doesn't happen anywhere else. Those three Hebrew words doesn't happen anywhere else. It happens again in Judges 17. And what's interesting about Judges 17, even though it comes towards the end of the book, you find out at the end of the story that it actually happens in the life of Moses' grandson. They pull a flip on you and they flash back. And in this story in Judges chapter 17, a Levite who is uh, 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 um, Moses' grandson ends up being lured into serving as a priest in the home of someone who sets up false gods and idols in his home to worship. In Deuteronomy 12, Moses tells the people you're to have one place where God puts his name, and that's where people are to converge in order to worship God. And in Judges 17, we get a glimpse just a generation or two later of one of the very first problems the people of Israel faced by Moses' own grandson, no less, is that they were actually setting up idols and things in their homes. And so as you read through the book of Judges and you see all the problems that people face and all the issues they deal with because of their idolatry and their rebellion against God, you get to the end and you realize, wait a second, it actually began with a worship problem. All of this downward spiral, all of the relational issues, all of the power abuses, all the problems began with a worship problem. God wanted them to have one place because he was one God, and inevitably, people started doing their own thing and customization led to canonization. Their biggest issue was a worship issue. And as I thought about this, that this week, isn't that so much of our problem of our culture as well? Don't we see one of the biggest issues of our world, If not the biggest issue of our world, is actually a worship issue? We're so tempted to make it about other things. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there aren't other bad things out in the world, but our worst problem, I believe, is a worship problem because the greed of this world, the abuse of this world, the destruction of relationships, go down the line and name any other problem you can imagine, begins with hearts lured into the worship of something other than God. The worship of self. The worship of success, the worship of power, the worship of stuff, of sex, of self-image, of beauty. We see the ripple effects in the book of Judges of what began as a worship problem into so many other issues. I do believe that at the heart of our world's issues is a worship issue. Our biggest problem is not a Democratic or a Republican president. Our biggest problem, despite what the pundits would tell you, because there's a lot of people in the world who would say, if only we fix this, everything would be okay. Biggest problem in our world is not Congress. The Biggest problem in our world is not the DMV. <laughs> Though COVID has ruined so many things, but it fixed the DMV. <laughs> who knew it would take a pandemic to fix the DMV? Because I went a few months ago and I was in and out in 10 minutes, okay? But God gave the people one place because they were to be dedicated to one God. He didn't want the customization of their worship to lead to the canonization of their worship. And so, coming back to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 5 and following, we see that one place leads to something else as well. Again, he, he wrote, instead, turn to the place the Lord your God chooses from all tribes to put his name for his dwelling and go there. You are to bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and your personal contributions, your vow, your free will, the firstborn of your herds and flocks. You will eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice with your household in everything you do because the Lord your God has blessed you. You are not to do as we are doing here today. Everyone is doing whatever seems right in his own sight. Point number two, God gives the people one place because he wants them to be one people. God gives them one place because he wants them to be one people. There's something profoundly uniting about worship. I mean, we know that here, that people from different cultural backgrounds, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, people with different kinds of baggage and mess, addictions and habits, that you come here in this room and you get to worship the same God. But on the flip side of that coin, we see that there's something deeply dividing about idolatry. And we actually see this, this pan out hundreds of years later when the kingdom of Israel falls apart. Because God tells the people there's going to be a place in which everyone converges to worship. And God eventually raises up a king for the people, after the judges. And that king is named Saul, and Saul had some issues. And so King David rises up. And King David has some issues too. He's not quite as bad as Saul. David has a son named Solomon, and Solomon's got plenty of issues. And so God takes the kingdom from Solomon's heir, and the kingdom ends up splitting. And so you have Two tribes to the south and the rest of the tribes to the north. You have Judah and you have Israel. And, 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 and there's kind of factions between them. There's, there's animosity between them. And so the king who's up north, who's kind of rebelling and leaving from the uh, kingdom in the south, says this in First Kings chapter 12. He said to himself, The kingdom might now return to the house of David. If these people regularly go to offer sacrifices in the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, because God had given them one place, what's going to happen if they do that? The heart of these people will return to their Lord, King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and go back to the king of Judah. So the king sought advice. Then he made two golden calves, and he said to the people, going to Jerusalem is too difficult for you. You're not going to go down there for your worship anymore. You're not going to go down the first feast and festival. What does he say? Israel, here are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set it, one in Bethel, put the other in Dan, which by the way is the place where that story in Judges takes place. This led to sin. The people walked in procession before one of the calves all the way to Dan. What did Jeroboam do? He knew that one place meant one people. And so he said, if I'm going to actually get these people to fracture, i got to give them multiple places of worship. And so instead of me just giving them one more, I'm going to give them two more. And this led to a fractured people in so many ways. In fact, the people of the north, as they continued in idolatry and what they, they clearly knew, they shared a Jewish heritage. But their beliefs and their religion began to mesh with the surrounding cultures and peoples and gods. And they began to stray more and more and more from the worship prescribed in the book of Deuteronomy. But fast forward a thousand years. Jesus, in John chapter 4, goes to a place that really surprises his disciples. He goes to Samaria. Where does he go? He goes to the north. Jesus came and he didn't just hang around in the south, he actually went up north. And he had a conversation with, of all people, a Samaritan, and of all people, a Samaritan woman. And not just a Samaritan woman, but a woman at a well. And the reason she was at the well in the middle of the day is because she had multiple husbands and she had a lot of baggage and she had been marginalized by her people. So much so that her, his disciples, Why the, what are you talking to her for? But Jesus gets into a conversation with this woman about worship because she knew, and it came out in that conversation, she knew that the Jews worship down south, that that's where real worship happened. And in this conversation, Jesus reveals who he is, and he says this about worship. In John four twenty three, he says, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. And in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must be must worship in spirit and in truth. The people had to worship at the temple, but Jesus was coming to be the true temple. D.A. Carson elaborates on this phrase in spirit and truth in his commentary. He writes, To worship the Father in spirit and truth clearly means more than, the worship, than, more than worship without necessary ties to particularly holy places. The prophet spoke of a time when worship would no longer be focused on a single central sanctuary, when the earth would be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The apocalypse, he's referring to Revelation, last book of the Bible, concludes with a vision of the consummated kingdom, the New Jerusalem, in which there is no temple to be found because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. God gave the people a temple. They gave them one place to be one people. They gave them one place that they would be united as a people. But Jesus came and did far better a job uniting than the temple ever did. Because as we hear elsewhere in the New Testament, no longer was it limited to the Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, slave and Greek, male and female, that all were united in Christ. One place, one people. Now, this doesn't mean that gathering together is no longer important. But we're not going to get every single Christian around the globe together for a festival. I don't know where you'd hold that. But we do gather corporately and are committed to doing so in the local church as a foretaste, if anything, of that consummate gathering of God's people worshiping him in heaven. That this is a glimpse of something far, far greater. That when we worship together corporately, we are united as one body, as one family, a picture of things to come. We worship as a united people. Now, just as a bit of a side tangent for for the nerds in the room, I read a meta-analysis, which is a study that goes over lots of other studies. They had their own arguments, too, talking about the effects of corporate singing on people. Now, they weren't specifically talking about worship, but what I love is as as I read this, I was like, wait a second, God designed us for this that there's two phrases that came out over and over again, people who study uh, a neuropsychology, that when people in a place together sing together, two things happen. One is called social bonding, and the second is called self-other merging. Self, other, like me and you, emerging. That happens in the context of a community. It's done through the release of endorphins and, and oxytocin. That there's actually a biochemical pathway that has been designed in you that when you come together and you worship alongside other people, God weaves and knits those people together into a family. One of the hard things about when we, always, when we had to worship at, at a distance and stream is we didn't have that. And I know that in any given Sunday, there's people who have to stay home, but there's something different about our design to be in a place together, worshiping together as one family. I was like, man, it plays out even in our biology. One place, one people. But continuing down, scrolling down to the bottom, God also gives us an interesting detail about the how. I say scroll even though I have paper because it's the age we live in. Deuteronomy 12, verse 15. God gets into some details about how they too are to and how not to worship. And we're gonna talk more about this later in Deuteronomy. So we're just gonna glean a little bit off the top today. He says, but whenever you want, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your city gates according to the blessing the Lord your God has given you. Those who are clean or unclean may eat it as they would a gazelle or deer. What God is saying here is there's a bunch of offerings that will be reserved for the central location of worship, but that doesn't mean you can't eat until you all gather in one place. You're going to have meat. You're going to have herds. You can do this. There is a provision by which you can continue to eat meat in your hometowns without having to travel down. But verse 16, you must not eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. Down to verse 21. Verse 21. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, you may slaughter any of your herd or flock as he has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat it within your city gates whenever you want. Indeed, you may eat as the gazelle and the deer are eaten. Both the clean and the unclean may eat it. Get that. Both the clean and the unclean may eat it. He's making provision for people to be fed. But verse 24, Do not eat blood. Pour it on the ground like water. Do not eat it so that you and your children after you will prosper because you will be doing what is right in the Lord's sight. What an interesting detail. Don't eat the blood. God gives lots of instructions and lots of details on how the people are to worship. This is one of them that comes out in in chapter 12. Don't eat the blood. Why? Because the blood is life. E.H. Merrill, Old Testament scholar, he provides a little bit of insight into this. He says, the idea seems to be that blood as the very essence of life must be returned to the earth from which the creator at the beginning had brought it forth. That in pouring out the blood, you actually acknowledge the sovereignty of God, that I'm not in control of life. God's in control of life. The animal that I just slaughtered belongs to him, and I get to partake in it as a gift. But the life belongs to the Lord. Continuing on, he wrote, even profane slaughter had overtones of worship and holiness. That worship wasn't just something that they showed up to a particular place in a particular time on a special day to do, but in the rhythms of their life, preparing a meal, there was overtones of worship. This was also true of other foodstuffs. The Israelite could help himself to his his heart's content except for any gives a list of exceptions, all of which must be taken to the central sanctuary and there alone eaten before the Lord as a symbol of covenant oneness. Don't eat the blood. What's interesting for me as I read through this is that worship wasn't just something built into the seasonal rhythms, the the several times that people would have to venture down into one place for the feast or the festival, that worship was included in the details. Every time... Whether at the place where God would put his name or in their hometown, when they sacrificed an animal to be prepared and eaten, they would be reminded and guided by concepts of worship. In the regular rhythms of their lives, they were reminded of who they were, and more importantly, whose they were. Reminding and remembering is such a huge theme in the book of Deuteronomy, as Gary's mentioned, over the past few weeks. That several chapters ago, they were to put God's word all around them so they saw it all the time. And here we get in mundane tasks, like preparing meals, reminders, because worship is a part of their daily lives. Worship wasn't just something they were to show up and do. Worshipers were the kind of people they were called to be. Let me say that again. Worship isn't just something we show up to do. Worshipers is the kind of people we're called to be. And when Jesus came, and he lived the perfect life that we couldn't, and he went to the cross, every animal sacrifice that had happened in which blood blood had been poured out, pointed forward, we know from Hebrews chapter 9, pointed forward to the perfect sacrifice who would hang on the cross and whose blood would be poured out the temple would no longer be necessary because people could worship God in spirit and in truth. And while our worship today is no longer sacrificing lambs, someone walked out after first service, and said, Zach, you mean to say I'm the only one in this church sacrificing goats? And I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> I won't say who it was, but we still are worshipers nonetheless. And in Paul in his letter to Rome, Chapter 12, verse 1, he says this about our worship. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Point number three is that worship encapsulates everything. For the Israelites, it was in the details of their life. And for us, it's the same. That our lives Our bodies are to be given as a living living sacrifice to God. That we are called as a people to pick up our cross and to bear it, to die to self. That's one of the things baptism acknowledges, that we die to self. Dying into the waters, raised up in life in Jesus. As a parent, as a spouse, I'm called to die to self in order to sacrificially love my wife and my children. And in so doing, I offer up worship to God. As a friend or a roommate, there are times I die to self in order to serve my roommates or my friends, in order to love them well, and in, in so doing, offer up a sacrifice of worship to God. In my workplace, in your workplace, on the sports team, in the classroom, that there are places where we're called to die to self in order to offer ourselves to serve, to love, to sacrificially give, to offer hospitality. And in so doing, we offer our lives, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to the glory of God. That is our spiritual worship. Worship isn't something we merely show up to do, even though this is awesome. Worshippers are the kind of people we're called to be, not just on a Sunday morning, but on a Monday morning and on a Friday night and on a Saturday afternoon. That's who we are, not just what we do. Gary, I'm gonna invite you up for communion. Close us in prayer. God, I pray that you would reveal to us, Lord, where it is this very week with the people that you have set in our path what it looks like, Lord, for us to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices to you, our lives as living sacrifices to you, to serve and to love and to glorify you. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to our hearts where perhaps things in this world have torn and lured away our affections and our attention. God, that we we would be a people that even though your church is in many places, God, that we would still be one people who worship one God that you would be the ultimate object of those affections. So reveal those things to us. Help, Lord, for us to remove the distractions, God, that we might be beacons of your light and love in this world. We all ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.